Thank you, Ken, Andrea. Man, what a sweet time of prayer. Did you enjoy that? I did for sure. Um, prayer is a really important part of what we do around here, and uh, just was prompted to talk about it for just a second. Uh, one of the things I appreciate so much about our worship team is that before they step up to lead you in worship, uh, they bathe over you in prayer. Um, 7 a.m. every Sunday morning, the worship team is here, and before they step up on the stage, they're down there praying over you. It's just really sweet to be a part of that and get to hear Tracy pray over you, which she was sitting right here when she was praying. That's why I'm pointing. She prayed over you, and then she led you in worship, and I love that. And uh, I appreciate what Ken does through our prayer ministry. All the requests are collected and, and prayed for all week long with our prayer team. Our prayer partners are down here at the end of the service. And if you notice, we're changing things up a little bit. We really want to be personal with this. Um, what we've noticed is that we'll collect five, six, eight prayer requests every week. And some of them are, um, hey, would you pray for me? I've got an exam on Thursday. I've got this big meeting on Friday. And they're kind of down the road. But some of them are like, hey, I'm at the end of my rope. Just pray that I don't let go this week. And it's, it's a big deal. And so, like, we want to pray right now kind of thing. And so that's why we're doing that at the end of our services. If you've got a request and, and you'd be comfortable just letting somebody pray over you don't have to elaborate just let's pray right now and then they'll put it in the box for you and then the prayer team will pray over that all week long and so our prayer partners will be down here at the end of the service and that's why we're doing that because we take seriously our crying out to God and and we take seriously your prayer needs all right um a couple things we're going to start in exodus one you'll go ahead and get ahead start turning there it's the second book in your bible we've done with genesis we're in exodus and uh getting geared up for easter next week be in exodus 12 but today we're going to start in one we're going to cover one through five um, just a few announcements. Uh, I don't have the details. If you're a golfer, where are my golfers at? Okay, I have details next week. Golf tournament coming up before too long to raise money. Just put, put that in your bank, that in your mind. Next week, start looking for details. Uh, connect class, for those of you who want to join or just find out more information about the church, you're looking for a church home. Connect class starts the Sunday after Easter, so two weeks from today. On April the 7th, we do that during the second service in the kids' building downstairs. Um, at the end of the service, you can just sign up for that, and we'll send you a reminder just to kind of get you the details and make sure you have what you need. But that's Connect Class. It's a two-part class. Uh, next, this coming weekend, as Joe mentioned, is Easter weekend. So I want to spend just a moment um, going over Easter weekend so that you have all the details. Um, we're going to begin Easter weekend at 6 a.m. on Friday morning, which was about the time that Jesus was probably finishing up with his second trial. Um, he had finished one before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish council, and then he stood uh, before the Roman council, and he was finishing that up probably around daybreak, and that began um, the, the, the process of getting him ready to go to the cross, but he already been beaten, and, you know, been brutally beaten, um, but Friday morning, we're going to begin our 48 hours of prayer at 6 a.m., we're going to pray all the way through Sunday at 6 a.m., I want to encourage you to sign up for that, even if you think you're like, I'm not like a varsity prayer, or I'm not, you know, super Christian, um, but you believe in Jesus and you love Jesus and you have a relationship with him, what you're saying is I'll spend, um, to the best of my ability, 30 minutes talking to Jesus and, uh, and praying for some things. And we're going to even give you like just some things to pray for. If you, so you can pray for what you want or you can pray through what we've got. But just please, if, you, if you're a believer, we want to encourage you to join us in just bathing all next weekend in prayer. Um, and we're going to start that on Friday morning at 6 a.m. Friday evening and here at 6.30 p.m. is our Good Friday service. And so you're already aware probably of what that is. Um, it is a focus on the death and, and the, um, the burial of Jesus. And we'll, so we'll end Friday night together with his death. And it'll be kind of a, a quiet time, just like it was 2,000 years ago on Friday. Uh, we'll leave with an expectation of Sunday, but a sense of somebody we love just died. 
And uh, so we'll leave out of here quiet, and then we'll come back together on Sunday morning. Um, the, there will be a prayer walk around the campus. I think it's 7 a.m., details in your worship guide. If you want to join us for that, you can join us for that. The prayer team will be walking around praying over you and the place. And, and then uh, 7 a.m., we'll kick off our, uh, our resurrection celebration with the sunrise service down at the pond, weather permitting. So a lot coming up. Uh, my hope is that if you're a regular attender, you'll invite so many people, you have to give up your seat. Um, we're, we're excited about presenting Jesus and the gospel next week. We're, we're believing that when we present the gospel, um, it doesn't do nothing. It will do something. And uh, our hope is that those who don't know Jesus will come in and leave here knowing him. And so we want you to invite as many people as you can who don't know Jesus next weekend. And then be ready to give up your seat for them. Cool? All right. Uh, Exodus 1. So we're going to get some intro. We are, this is kind of part two on suffering. The title is A Forgotten People. Um, I, I use that uh, because we're talking about a people. Um, the, 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 what's the beginning of the Jewish nation, the Israelites. It's just this family right now. Um, but we're definitely going to see a sense of feeling forgotten. And, uh, and I thought that as we relate to this story, that's, that's, that's a, an inerrant response to suffering, is that we feel like we've been forgotten. Like, where is God? He's left me. And so, A Forgotten People is the title of last week, A Forgotten People Part 1, A Forgotten People Part 2. So we're going to finish up our conversation on suffering this week, and then we will look at the suffering of our Savior next weekend, um, the place where we find our hope and our salvation and our forgiveness of sins. So um, suffering is going to be, again, the conversation. Just a warning, if I, if I go to sleep, I will today, after the second service preaching, I will collectively be up here more than I've had sleep, okay? So I'm going to do my best, pray, pray that the Holy Spirit works despite that, okay? Um, we've got a lot to cover, and I don't want to hinder what God wants to do here um, for any reason. So, um, so suffering. Um, here's the thing we're going to learn, we are learning, that suffering in and of itself is not inherently good or bad. We tend, we tend to always just go to evil, 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 because we see a lot of suffering uh, as a result of evil in our world, okay? But as we saw last week, God's saying to Joseph, or th- saying through Joseph, as Joseph proclaimed to his brothers who caused him to suffer, what you intended to be evil for me, God superintended, right? His intention overrides your intention, and he intends good. And so we see that suffering isn't inherently good or evil, necessarily. It can be the result of evil, sure. So then let's think about um, our response to Suffering tends to be a default of it feels, it feels evil, feels bad, right? Suffering can't be good. And that's the way we respond and the way we, we typically feel. Um, and, and except for extreme cases, some people find a sense of gratification and, and even a sense of like um, acceptance in suffering. And so they pursue it. This is where you're like cutters, uh, people who intentionally pursue poverty not for the right reasons. You know, they, 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 they like the pain of it. But most of us in general, right, we feel it and we go, this has got to be bad. This can't be good. Something's wrong, right? Can't be anything good happening right now. Well, God is shattering that, that notion in our minds and hopefully in our hearts um, as we see that while, yeah, suffering comes from many different sources and oftentimes from evil intentions, God has a super intention. It's like he did with Job. I mean, God allowed that. Satan, right, authored it. God allowed it. What Satan intended as evil for Job God superintended. Now, that's a word I like to use because it helps me understand even the scriptures we have today. Did all the men writing all these words have the best intentions all the time? I don't think so. Sometimes good intentions, sometimes maybe, maybe, but God, the Holy Spirit, right, superintended this to be God's word, right? 
And so um, we see God superintending over the evil intentions that may be causing suffering. But not only that, um, the New Testament talks about suffering in a good light. Romans 5, Paul says that suffering produces character and hope. Those are good things, right? Suffering. He says, I rejoice in suffering. It produces character and hope. Then James says what? I rejoice in suffering. Rejoice with me in your suffering. Why? Because it produces maturity and completeness. And so we see that suffering is not inherently evil or good, right? But it's what God does with it that makes it good, how he superintends it for our good. Praise his name, right? Um, I often walk through this in premarital counseling. Good premarital counseling is not laying out a roadmap to avoid trials and hardships. Because that's really just setting you up for failure. (laughs) Right? As a couple, you need to be able to see hardships, see disagreements, and then step into them with the right heart and walk through them. Not avoid them. Because it's in those hardships that our bond together, our covenant bond is strengthened. And our character is produced. And perseverance is produced. Right? And, And our hope that this thing may actually make it to the end. Right? Comes from walking through the trials. Not through avoiding them. So life is not a process of avoiding hardships, which there's, a, there's kind of, I've talked about this before, there's a, there's a kind of a modern day emergent Christianity that's like, okay, like God, all God wants for you is to avoid trials. And so um, just be a positive thinker and you'll avoid all the trials in your life, okay? It, it's the prosperity gospel. And, and it, it sets you up for failure. Because God's like, whoa, 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 I'm going to walk with you through these hard things. Some of them will be the result of your own doing. Your choices. Some will be at the hands of other people. Some of them circumstantial. However, whatever was intended for you for evil, I'm going to superintend it for your good and for my glory. Gosh, that gives me hope. See how Paul says that? Produces hope. All right. So Exodus 1, let me set the scene. We ended with the suffering of Joseph. We saw what Joseph did. He suffered at the hands of his brother. It was just a really horrible, heinous thing that they did. They threw him in the pit, decided, well, let's don't kill him because then we'll feel guilty our whole lives. Let's sell him into slavery. Obviously, that didn't work. They felt guilty in the end. And, uh, and, J- and, and Joseph extends forgiveness. But before that, his first post as a slave, as a servant, he displayed, he, he displayed faithfulness. He worked hard. He was trustworthy. He displayed integrity. We saw that last week. And then his situation got better or worse? Worse, right? He's responding godly and it got worse. Then what does he do? He responds the same way. Right, until, until in the end, God's story unfolds. So we say, how did he do that? Well, he didn't see his circumstance as just his. He saw it as part of a bigger picture, a bigger story that was unfolding. We're going to see the same thing today. And uh, in, in, in the wrong response, we're going to see a people who were so narrow-minded, so focused on just them, narcissistic, not that they weren't in an easy situation, but they were, they were, they were unable to see the forest for the trees. And so here's what happens. You've got... Um, 70 people in this family. It's on its way to become a great nation, like God promised Abraham. 70 people, Joseph dies off. So chapter 1, verse um, 6 says that Joseph died, and all the brothers and sisters. So everybody that was kind of part of that 70, they've kind of died off. And now you've got this new generation living in Egypt, and it's just beautiful. Look at verse 7, chapter 1. But the people of Israel, now they're, they're being referred to as a nation, no longer just a family. They're growing. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied Does that sound familiar? That was God's intended purpose for humanity from the beginning of creation. And then his promise also to Abraham, right? You're going to become a great nation. And so we see it happening. Even in suffering, it's happening. God's plans can't be thwarted by, right, the intentions of man. And so they are growing 
They multiplied the growing exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now think about their circumstances. Everything about suffering in this time, right, would say that your numbers would be declining. No health care, um, people just like taking their own lives, right? Knowing that they're going to wake up tomorrow and tomorrow's not going to be any better. There is no hope. But yet the opposite was happening. They were growing in number and health and strength. Okay, so Pharaoh is going to take notice, but let's see what happens in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, so we're not dealing with the old Pharaoh, the one who knew Joseph, right? This is a new one. He arose over Egypt, and he did not know Joseph. So here's what he did. He said to his people, he's acknowledging the Israelite nation, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. What's he acknowledging? He's actually, he doesn't know it, he's acknowledging the promise of God. God said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. And, and Pharaoh's watching it happen kind of under his ranks. And he's kind of freaking out about it. So here's what he's going to do. He's going to come. This is 10. Let us deal shrewdly with them. And this is just going to unfold as a really nasty set of um, things that he's going to do to the Israelite people. But his effort, we, we're going to keep in mind, is to what? To keep them from becoming a mighty nation. So he's literally going to add persecution to them be, simply because God's growing them. To try to stop God's plan. Now, he doesn't necessarily know he's stopping God's plan. All he thinks is, i got to keep these people under control. But we read this story, the bigger story, and we go, look at God's plan just unfolding. Amidst the worst circumstances, against all odds, God's plan is unfolding. His promises are true. And Pharaoh's looking at it, and he's freaking out. And so one thing he knows to do, let's oppress them. Let's add more burden to their back. This is what he says. So we're going to deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they'll join our enemies and fight against us and escape from this land. He's kind of, kind of wigging out here. Verse 11. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. Wow. That was his intention. Not to get work out of them, to afflict them. Sound like Satan and Job? Same thing. I just want to afflict him. I just want to see, we, see if he buckles under pressure. I want to see what he does when I add affliction to his life. And so Pharaoh's intention was to afflict them. And here's what he said. They built for Pharaoh stores. And this is what they did, but his purpose was to afflict them. Um, built for them store cities, Pithom and Ramses, verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more the harder the circumstance got, the more the suffering increased. Look at this. The more they multiplied and they spread abroad. That's Moses' way of saying the more that Pharaoh tried to stamp out God's plan, the more fruitful it became. Love that. Now, uh, verse, let's jump down to verse 13. So they, then they responded even heavier. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter and with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now, it just kept getting harder. Okay, put on more work. Okay, put on more work. Tell you what, it's not working. All right, look at verse 22 with me. Because if it wasn't suffering before, like all they're doing is just multiplying and growing, multiplying and growing, multiplying and growing. God's promise is moving forward. Look at what he does in 22 in a desperate attempt to stamp out the Israelites. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you should let every daughter live. Drown their baby boys. Okay, right? Like this is, okay, this is serious. This isn't like put their baby boys to death. It's throw their baby boys in the river 
and let them suffocate underwater. Torture them. Like this, I mean, I, I don't know, I can't imagine in my mind, I'm sure there's probably a worse version of torture and suffering, but like, I mean, this is bad. And to be that pregnant mom, no sonograms, no forewarning, and to know that you're giving birth in 50-50 shot, right? And, and so this was strategic. He was trying to break their will, trying to break their spirit, trying to break this multiplying. And all, all this is to do what? To try to thwart the plan of God. He's taking it out on the Israelites. But, but it's God's promise that's moving this forward. So... This brings us to Moses. Moses um, was, a, was a Hebrew baby boy. And his mom, if you know the story, um, as I probably would have too, just like, what else can we do? What other options do we have? I mean, I think I'd rather have my own life taken than to throw my, one of my baby boys into a river. And so she builds a little raft and, and puts some tar in it to kind of waterproof it. And then she puts, um, puts the, her baby boy in there and shoves it off down the river. One of the, the servants, Pharaoh's daughter, finds the baby calls him Moses, which means to draw out. She drew him out of the river, um, has one of her maidservants take care of him and nurture him. And so Moses, a Hebrew boy, grows up in Pharaoh's family. Okay, so that kind of sets the scene for where we're going. And, uh, and just one last detail about what happened is, you know, I, I guess, I mean, I, maybe Moses just grew up knowing. I mean, I guess probably they, they look different, but like, I'm just Hebrew. I don't know. Just maybe, I don't know how he knew it, but he knew he was Hebrew. Maybe at one point, um, maybe an adult said that to him, and he heard it. It's like, oh, okay. But um, he he sees somebody. Um, he sees a, an altercation, and he takes up for um, a Hebrew and kills a man. So he commits murder, and uh, and so he ends up kind of freaking out. Pharaoh hears about it. He's angry. He's after his life, so he flees. So that kind of sets sets us up for chapter three, the burning bush. Okay, that's the that's the background to the burning bush. It wasn't just some random event. Right in Hebrew history, like God is like moving here and He's speaking here. He's responding. His plan is going forward, and so He speaks to a Hebrew who's running from the law, who was raised by pagans. Right, that's who He speaks to at the burning bush. Moses wasn't super spiritual. Been to seminary, right? Hebrew Hebrews. He may have heard the stories of Joseph. Maybe I mean, right. So this is who He chooses to work through in chapter three. I want you to see a, a couple of things, but before we get to three, I want you to end chapter two with me, because all chapter one and two is sets us up to understand the depth of the suffering that's going on, the hardship in the Hebrew lives. And so here's where chapter two ends. Look at 23 with me, and then 24. This is going to take us to the place where we ask, where is God in suffering? Okay? And this is a question we ask, where are you, God? Right? This is hard. Where are you? And so the, the, they cry out in 23, during those many days, the king of Egypt died. Maybe they're thinking, here's our chance. The one before him was good to us. This one's been harsh. Here's our chance. And the people of Israel groaned. I guess they felt like they had permission now to whine about things. They probably got killed for whining before, right? So they begin to groan because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. Now, we don't know that they cried out to God, but, but nevertheless, God's still aware and he's going to respond. Now, he, they may have, but we're going to see them later on kind of crying out to Pharaoh. So they're crying out, they're groaning, they're, 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 they're lamenting and they're suffering. And, uh, and that, so they're crying for a rescue from slavery. And so it says that, that that cry for a rescue, it came up to God. Whether they meant for it to or not, maybe they did. Let's give them benefit of the doubt. They're crying out to the God of their fathers, God of Abraham. It comes up to God. 
Okay, so where is God in suffering? Verse 24 is just this beautiful verse. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God did what? Knew. So here's what I want to do. God is mentioned four times in that verse doing something. We're going to look at those four somethings real quick. So the first thing he did is he did what? He heard. Okay? So let's just draw some some practical conclusions about hearing. Um, If you hear something, you're in proximity. Right? If If you hear something, now the kids could be in the back room and you hear them. You maybe can't see them, but you can hear them. You're close enough, you're near enough to hear. So what do we know about God? He was near. Yeah, he was near. He was in proximity to their suffering to hear from them. Listen, God hears you. Okay? So in those moments where you feel like prayers are hitting the ceiling, God's not hearing me. In faith, what do we do? We say, I feel this way, but I know what I feel is not true. I know God's in close proximity. He can hear me right now. I believe it in faith. So it says that he heard their groaning. And God remembered I love how he remembered his covenant with Abraham, his covenant with Isaac, his covenant with Jacob. We watched all their stories unfold, and he restated that covenant promise with each one of those generations. So we know it's not that God forgot, and he went, oh, I remember now. As much as God, what it's saying is that God never did forget. He remembered perpetually. He was faithful to what he said. So even in the midst of darkness and like, maybe God just forgot. I don't know if you've been there, where like there was a part in your life, a place in your life where things were just exceedingly like just good and growing and you feel like God was out front leading you and things were fruitful and then you come up against a wall that you might classify as hardship, trial, or suffering. It's like, oh gosh, where did God go? I missed it. I mean, I got off track here. Where is God? We we feel that way, right? But God is not forgotten, right? That's why Paul says, he who began a good work in you is going to be faithful to do what? To finish it. He doesn't forget. He remembered Every day, every moment of suffering, he remembered. What else did he do? I love this next one. It has an avatar feel to it. If you watch the movie Avatar, um, I shouldn't do that to God's word, but it does remind me of Avatar. Um, he sees them, okay? If you know what I'm talking, if you've seen Avatar, you know what I'm talking about. Instead, in Avatar, it's the Blue People movie. It's this weird, fictitious sign. Anyway, um, the, instead of saying, I love you, do, you, do you remember what they said? Does anybody remember? It was, it was, it was profound. I see you. That's how they, they express love in the, in the, between the blue people. Like, where they work up their courage to say, I see you. This big romantic moment, blue everywhere. Like, I see you. I see you too. Isn't that profound though? Isn't that what we're trying to communicate when we say I love you? Like, like I, I, I see you. <laughs> um, for people who tend to default to hiding, that's a profound statement. I don't always like for you to see me. I like for you to see the projection I put out front. But God's saying, no, I, I see, I see you. And I not only see your circumstances and see what's happening to you, and I see your heart motives, like I see the ugliness too. I, I see the sin. I, I see you're bent towards rebellion in the way that you've, you've said some things about me that you don't really mean. I see that too. And, like, what that does for me is it, I don't think we actually realize this, but I think we think that God's embarrassed of our suffering sometimes. 
I just don't want to, you know, I'm, maybe he just doesn't want to, because we feel guilt and shame in it, right? And, and so what's God saying? I, I see all that. I, I see the dirtiness. I, like, come into my presence like you are. Please, come. I see you. So we get in those moments where, like, can God see this thing? Can't you see what's happening to me? God says, yes, I do. I, I do see you. The last thing he did is he knew. God knew. And uh, if, you've, if you're in life groups, you've walked through some of this with, um, probably with a, with a life group discussion. But, but again, another um, profound thing that, uh, that's being expressed here. Um, when God says, I know, it's, it's a sense of like, not that I know that it's happening as much as like, I know everything about it, all the facets of it. I saw what he said to you. I, I saw what that soldier said to your child. I saw him, you know, mistreat your wife. I saw the suffering. I saw your, you know, I saw your baby boy take his last breath. I saw it and I knew it. And we see this expression in Jesus' ministry. I just pulled one excerpt out out of many, but like Luke 7, it's after the centurion came to Jesus. Um, the next healing that Jesus performs says this, and this is Luke 7, 11 through 17. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. Okay, he was basically in a coffin being carried out by the, the bears. And so um, he was the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. Lost her husband, now she lost her only child. I mean, right? I mean, this is kind of feeling like this Hebrew situation. And, uh, and so I love this response that's recorded by Luke in 13. It says, and when the Lord Jesus saw her, he saw her, he had what? Compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. He didn't just see her circumstances. He saw her. He saw the tears. He saw that she had lost her husband. She, he saw that she had lost her child. So where, where is God? What is God doing in suffering? He, he is seeing it. He's near. He's in proximity. And he is seeing every tear of your circumstances and your suffering. He sees it. He knows it. Jesus raises her son from the dead. Uh, verse 16 says this. Fear sees them all. We tend to go fear bad, right? Fear evil. No, see, we can't just do that. This is good fear. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God. What did they, they responded in worship? We're going to see these, these folks respond in worship in a minute, but a different kind of worship. A great prophet has risen among us, and God is what? Visited his people. God is near to us. God is near. And this report spread through the whole of Judea and the surrounding country. God saw it. God knew it. So we're going to look now at how God responds um, to our suffering, our crying out in the midst of suffering. And so we're going to move up to three, just a couple of things from Exodus 3. Um, so, so here's what happened. God, um, he hears, he knows, he sees, he remembers. So he initiates this burning bush discussion with, with Moses. Kind of, kind of freaks him out because not only is a bush talking and not burning up, but God's telling him to go do some things that he's not comfortable doing. Like A, go back to Egypt. Whoa, there's a bounty on my head. B, go straight to Pharaoh and say some things. Um, go gather up the Hebrew people, right, who really aren't, you're not in good favor with them either. Go gather the elders. 
and tell him to get ready. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rescue you guys. And Moses is kind of, well, I don't know if he's going to listen to me. Okay, I'm going to give you three signs. Staff. What's that in your hands? A staff. Okay, take the staff, drop it on the ground. Whoa, it turns into a snake. Don't freak out. Moses, grab it. Picks it up, turns it back into a snap. Okay, he gives him two more. Um, the cloak, take your hand, put it in your cloak, pull it out. Whoa, I got leprosy. Chill out, Moses. Put it back in your cloak. Wow, that was cool. Okay, he's like giving him these signs. Uh, same thing with water from the Nile. Turn to blood. Now, um, so what we want to look at is, uh, so this is the conversation that God has initiated. Look at... Um, Let's just read verses, this, this conversation, verse 6. And he said, God, he starts with his promise, I am God of your father, the father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What's he saying? I haven't forgotten my promise. I'm still him. My plan's still going forward. My story's still unfolding. And Moses hid his face. He was afraid to look at God. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And I have come down to do what? To rescue. I've come to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That's where that phrase comes from. God's speaking into, to their suffering through, through Moses saying, this is what I'm going to do. Okay? So this, as you can imagine, Moses goes from the elders, he does the magic tricks, and they get a little bit excited. Right? But before... He does that. Look at the end of chapter 3 with me in verse 19 and 20. But God wants to just be clear about things. Okay? This is still my story. Look at verse 19 of chapter 3. But I know that the, the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. What's God talking about? He's talking about his own hand. These magic tricks aren't going to cut it. Okay? It's more for you, Moses, than it is for anything else. Pharaoh's not going to respond. Look what he says in verse 20. So I will stretch out my hand and strike, strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So even before Pharaoh is approached, God's saying, it's not going to work. Like, that's profound. I need to hear that. This is my plan, God says. Here's how it's going to unfold. Here's what you do. You trust me. You follow what I've asked you to do, and here's how it's going to unfold. So the people, first of all, let's just state this. God responds um, to our suffering, but he responds to our suffering according to his plan, his story. Right? So God does respond when we cry. But he responds with what's good and right and part of his story. And so that's what he's saying here. Well, uh, powerful signs are given. The people um, get excited. Look at the end of chapter 4. This is 31. The people believed. This is sounding good, right? The warriors are beginning to, like the war cry is beginning to sound and hope is being kindled. And Right? There's a sense of finally, we're going to get out of this mess. Moses, get your magic tricks together. Let's do this. It doesn't happen that way. The people believed. And when, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and they did what? They worshiped. Now here's the problem. They worshiped based on their own expectations. They thought that the tricks were going to get them out. There's a whole other list of plagues coming that God's already spoken about. It's not going to happen until I want it to happen. They get excited. It's kind of a contingency-based worship. I'll worship you as long as it goes this way, God. Oh, I'm excited. Look at what God's doing. As long as you make it happen this way, I'm excited. Don't we do that? 
One of the things I'm so thankful for in our worship team up here, um, this comes out of the heart of Jason, and it's present in all those who lead, is this. We don't, like, like we see things like, um, like, like, Jesus, you're better than life. You know what that statement says? If this life doesn't get better, Jesus is so much better than my circumstances. I think that's what Joseph was singing, right? I think it was God's, that's the song he's calling him to here. Right? We sing things like, hey, God, you're, you're beautiful. And that may mean I'm looking forward to an eternal day, right? This day may not get better. But you are nonetheless beautiful. I love when we sing truth in here, things that are true, things that are not putting Jesus or God in this genie in a bottle, you know, freak show magician. Like, you know? He was going around healing people, not to display that he's like, I can do magic tricks. He was seeing people and having compassion. He was breaking for them and healing their diseases. You see, they're they're worshiping God. We're excited about this magic show. So, does it work? Does Pharaoh let him go? You can answer the question. God already said. It's not going to happen until I say it happens. We know it going in. Yet, look what happens. Verse 4 of chapter 5. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron. So here's what happens. They, Moses and Aaron, they've got everything. They've got the support of the people. They go before Pharaoh. They do their stuff. Pharaoh doesn't respond well. He says, why do you take the people away from their work? Why are you distracting them from, to, like, why are they excited about going and worshiping this guy? Don't they have work bricks to make? Do they, oh, they have extra time on their hands. I, I wasn't aware of that. Tell you what, here's what I'll do. Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, behold, the people of the land are now what? Many. You see that same consistent issue with Pharaoh? It's the plan of God moving forward, growing and unfolding, despite the suffering. And he's still, right, trying to stamp it out. I see that they are many. And you make them rest from their burdens, speaking to Moses, and you're distracting them. You're giving them a break. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Set the alarm a little bit earlier. What was already daunting, tiresome, grueling. Now we've got to set the alarm and, and, and go a little bit earlier. But here's the thing. Verse 8, but the number of bricks that they made in the past, you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. You don't get to make less bricks. Take all this God worship that you got, all that time you got for God worship, and go gather straw. You know, we've been doing that for you. Been being too easy on you. You see how circumstances, like, are just continuing in this story to grow worse and worse and worse. And suffering is increasing and increasing and increasing. And so, verse 9, let heavier work be laid on them, on the men. They may labor in it and pay no regard to lying words. Bad to worse. Where is God? And what is he doing? Right? Isn't that how we feel? Where is God? And what is he doing? He must not be able to hear me. He must not be able to see me. He must not know what's going on. He must have forgot some of those previous conversations. Hmm. Verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to who? What happened to their worship? Right? This is why I don't know that they were really crying out to God as much as he just overheard them crying. Who do they cry out to? Pharaoh. 
Where were they looking for relief in? Pharaoh. We did the magic tricks. It didn't work. God's not going to rescue us. Where was their trust? It was in, right, the magic tricks. Didn't work out. So default, we'll go back to Pharaoh. Maybe if we're really nice, we work hard, we cry out, maybe he'll, he'll relieve the pressure. In verse 20. And then they have a few words for Moses and Aaron. Okay? Cry out to Pharaoh, this didn't work. Moses and Aaron, come back. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge. These aren't kind words, by the way. Probably some cursing in here. The Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. And you have put a sword in their hand to kill us. What happened to their worship? It's now turned into resentment. Why? Because the circumstances didn't unfold according to their plan. Does that mean that there is no plan? There is a plan, right? God is unfolding his plan. But they respond in resentment to Moses and Aaron. And ultimately, who is the resentment directed towards? God. Right? God. Taking it out on Moses and Aaron. Now, this is beautiful. It doesn't... It doesn't end here, but we're going we're gonna to bring this text to a halt and get ready for next weekend. But I want to look at a few things with you about how God responds to suffering. And one of the things that we can see is how he responded to his own suffering. There's a beautiful example in Jesus that, that leads us into the right response in suffering. And, uh, and so, like, let's talk for just a second about wrong responses. We won't go through them all. Um, we see this in the, at the cross, Matthew 27. The, the soldiers mock him. They say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him if he desires him. Remember, he said he was the son of God. What are they doing? They're mocking him, saying, well, his trust is in God. So one, either God doesn't really love you, Jesus, or what? Maybe your faith isn't big enough. Why? Because God's letting you suffer. Isn't that what Job's friends did? I mean, isn't that what people around us sometimes do? It's horrible counsel to give somebody suffering. You just don't have enough faith. What are you saying? This is your fault. Now, could there be a lack of faith involved? Sure. That's horrible counsel to give somebody. Job's friends were not setting a good example. So the soldiers just jumping right in. Ha ha, Jesus. Evidently, God doesn't love you or your faith isn't strong enough. You're trusting the wrong God. There's some wrong responses to, to suffering. But we, we tend to do that. Um, let's look at some right responses. So... How did Jesus respond to his own suffering? In Mark 14, 36, we, we get this, he, he cries out. Is it wrong to cry out in suffering? No. Jesus cried out in suffering. This is how God responds to suffering. He cried out. What does he say? Abba, Father, Daddy, 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 all things are possible for you. Where's his faith? It's strong. Is suffering happening because his faith isn't strong? No. His faith is strong. All things, don't we quote that verse? All things are possible through Christ who strength. Like, right? That's strong faith. God, you, you are on your throne. You are on, in charge. You, you, you are able. That's what Jesus does. He says what? Remove this cup from me. He's crying out. Yet, yet, I love how Ken prayed. Yet not what I will, but what? What you will. Don't meet my intentions, God. Meet your intentions. Now, what a powerful prayer. Is there a lack of faith in that? No way. That's robust faith. God, you're able. 
Not only that, your plan is better, both of those things. I'm not able and my plan is horrible. You are able and your plan is good. Um, we even see this in Jesus crying out, St. Matthew 27. He says, my God, my God. This is um, uh, after the soldiers are mar- mocking him. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now he's quoting Psalm 22, okay, which was a familiar song that they would sing, a lament and suffering, but it has deliverance in the end. So we see that. Um, but Jesus isn't just singing about it, like he's living in it, in Psalm 22. We have to keep that in mind, right? He is feeling suffering here. He's not just singing a song about suffering because it matches the theme and it's a good backdrop for the video. Like he is suffering. He's not just singing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying it too, okay? So I want to look at the first five verses of what he's crying out. If you go back to Psalm 22, one through five, look at what is being expressed. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Where are you? My God, my God, where are you? Why are you so far from saving me? From the words of my groaning. Does that sound familiar? This is what Jesus is crying out on the cross. Now it doesn't end here. It's a song of victory, a song of deliverance. Just like we're going to see this passage in Exodus is a circumstance of deliverance and redemption. Two, Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. It seems that way. And by night, but I find no rest. I feel like you're hearing me, God. Yet, I love this three. Yet, you are what? You are holy still. You're no less good. Because I can't hear you because I don't think you're responding. You're no less good. You are holy. And you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. That's a different kind of worship when God's enthroned. Right? Not enthroned over my circumstances to play out according to my plan. You're enthroned over your story, God. That's that's beautiful. In you our fathers trusted. This is going all the way back to the Exodus. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you did what? You delivered them. According to how loud we cried? No. According to your story. You said from the beginning you were going to do it. And you did it. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. Praise Jesus. One last verse. This is 1 Peter 3.18. This is one I think that's coming up in life group conversations. Uh, 1 Peter 3.18 says this about Jesus' suffering. For Christ also suffered once for a reason. For what reason? For sins. The righteous. Remember how last week I said, has anybody... um, more good ever, like we were talking about why bad things happen to good people. Has anything worse ever happened to anybody better? That's what that's saying. The righteous died for the unrighteous. That was Jesus on the cross. You want to know why good things happen to bad, or bad things happen to good people? You're going to have to ask Jesus that question. He's the only one, right, who's ever really lived that out. So that he might do something. He might rescue us, redeem us, rescue us, bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Two things. God's character doesn't change because your circumstances change. You need to hear that, Christ follower. God, his character does not change just because your circumstances change. God is still good in the midst of your suffering. He is. His character doesn't change. He doesn't have mood swings. Second thing is this. God's presence doesn't change in the midst of suffering. You need to hear that. 
God is still present in the midst of your suffering. He's still good and he's still near. All right. Now we need to keep that in mind next, this next Friday, a good Friday. When we see the suffering on the cross, right? What's being expressed there? I feel abandoned. I feel forsaken. This does not look good. But nevertheless, God, you are still good. You are still good. I'm going to pray for you and ask the worship team to come back up.